got a Bible, uh, let's go to the book of Jude. If you're not real familiar with the book of Jude, it's uh, one chapter uh, next to the last book of the Bible, right before uh, Revelation. Uh, Jackson started us in it a couple of weeks ago, and uh, other than the week that Steve Payson's here on August 21st, plan is to spend the next several weeks up until Labor Day uh, walking through it verse by verse, except uh, next week's going to be a little different in that um, it's still based on Jude. It's going to kind of be a follow-up to what we do today in talking about the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. And we're going to talk about, you know, why believe this faith. Really, I'm going to do apologetics next Sunday. So uh, if you're not a Christian, kind of trying to figure this out, it'd be a great week for you to be here. If you have people that you have been inviting to church, people that you're praying for, sharing your faith with, it'd be a really good week to try to get them uh, to come. So I want to read the first couple of verses that uh, Jackson went over, just review for a second to lead into uh, verses 3 and 4 that we're going to focus on today, and um, really it'll take us a little bit to get through verse 4, we'll kind of do verses 4 through 16 together, but uh, the book starts, it says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, uh, which would mean he was the half-brother of Jesus, and of course Jackson pointed this out, crazy thing to be saying, you know, I'm a slave of my brother, okay, that, and that's, that's really what he's saying uh, here, and so uh, you know, probably the only time you would have done that is if your brother uh, was beating you up or something, you had to do it to get him off of you, I mean, why would uh, Jude have, uh, have done that, and I believe the only logical explanation is because he saw Jesus alive, uh, he saw him after the resurrection, but it, it says, to those who are called Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love uh, be multiplied uh, to you. And so, and then he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So understand what Jude's doing here. He's basically saying that I wanted to write uh, you this letter. And, and, and basically he's saying, I, really, I just wanted to brag about Jesus. I wanted to talk about this common salvation that we have uh, together in Christ because one of the great things the New Testament teaches us is that salvation, in one sense, is an individual experience. It's a personal experience, but really it's a corporate experience. We're in Christ together, the family of God, the, the, the people uh, of God. And he said, you know, I wanted to talk to you about how God called us from eternity uh, past, how he chose us in his love and his mercy and grace uh, to be his own. And, uh, you know, out of this love, he has set us apart unto himself and that Jesus came and he, he died for his people and uh, he, he rose again to give us new life and we're in Christ and we're preserved in him. Uh, you know, we're kept uh, and that, that's really how he ends the book, that he's able to present us faultless before the, the, the throne of his glory, that we're going to be glorified. Uh, someday. And, and, and basically, he's saying, you know, I, I wanted us to be able to think about all these great and glorious truths of what Jesus has done for us and who we are in him, but there's something I need to talk to you about. And, and, and that's really the transition between verse 2 and, and, and verse 3. 
He said, you know, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And the reason that I think this is relevant today, and of course it's relevant in every age, is it would be nice if we could come to church and just always be all positive. Right? There's so much negativity in the world. Uh, it, it would be nice if we could just come and, and focus on the positive and, and, you know, and talk about love and flowers and sunshine and uh, you know, just talk about heaven and the sweet by and by. And if, if we could just be positive. And, and I think we should be positive as much as we can. But the reality is, there's a lot of bad things, a lot of difficult things. The, the reality is, it's when you declare a positive truth, you're saying that what doesn't line up with that is false. If, if you say that something is right... By extension, whether you explicitly state it or not, you're saying something else is wrong. That's just how things work. And just as there were false teachers in, in, in that day that he needed to warn them against, we need to be warned against false teaching today. We need to be warned against People being led astray. I mean, we live in an age where, uh, you know, deconstruction, people deconstructing their faith is, is talked about, you know, so much. I think one of the last things, uh, or one of the saddest things I've ever listened to, uh, I don't know how many of you listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill uh, podcast over the last year or so, but one of the, the bonus episodes where he interviewed Josh Harris and he talked about uh, I don't like this word, but I'll use it, deconverting from Christianity. It's one of the saddest things I've ever listened to uh, in, in my life. And, and there's a lot of people wrestling with that. And, and we need to be equipped. We need to be grounded. We need to know what Christianity is, what the faith is, and uh, why we believe it, and how to stand for it, and what doesn't line up with it. Um, you know, he, he says here that we're to earnestly contend for the faith. And earnestly contend, it's, it's, a, it's a Greek word that we get our English word agonize from. To agonize for the faith. Uh, to, to, to wrestle uh, for the faith. You say, you know, again, can we not just be positive, uh, you know, there's all kinds of fighting, and people are contentious, and everybody's angry. Do we really need to fight for something? Do we need to stand up uh, for something? And, and so I would say that part of the reason why it's so important to talk about something like this is just simply because we need to know, first of all, if we're basing our lives on what's true, and if what we're sharing with other people is true, and 
you know, if you're not a Christian, if you're here because, you know, you're trying to explore this and figure it out, that's awesome. You need to know what's true. Or if somebody drug you here, and you really don't even want to be here, but if somebody drug you here, you still need to know what's true, what's real. What should we base our lives on? What should we base the future on? Is there an eternity? Are heaven and hell real? I mean, why do we believe what we believe? And listen, if something's worth believing... Shouldn't we be passionate about it instead of being apathetic uh, about it? To me, that's part of the idea of earnestly contending for the faith. Listen, I have a whole lot more respect for someone that I would completely disagree with who's passionate about what they believe than someone that I would agree with or someone who says that they're a Christian and they're completely apathetic about what they say they believe. I mean, if, if, if somebody's a Christian, they wouldn't walk across the street for their faith What's that even mean? Like if it's a coin flip as to whether or not you're going to get out of bed and go to church on Sunday, what's that even mean that you say this is their faith, this is your faith? Listen, people are changing the world by their passion. I mean, think about Islam spreading around the world. Well, martyrs tend to uh, be effective at spreading things. Uh, you look at changes in, in, in our society. I mean, you look at what's happened with, like, homosexual marriage, the gender identity kind of stuff. It's because people have passionately advocated for this. Uh, I mean, you know, homosexuality was considered a mental disorder until the early 1970s. And it wasn't because of science that it changed there. It was because of people's passionate advocacy for it. Same thing in, was it 2013, something like that, where the gender identity, gender dysphoria uh, was taken out of the DSM. Same kind of thing. People's passionate advocacy for it. I would say there's a problem if we say we have the truth, but people are more passionate for what we would say is a lie than we are for the truth. Are we earnestly contending for the faith? You know, th there's an all-out assault on truth in our culture today. But that should be expected. Again, we don't expect non-Christians to think, to believe like Christians. That, that's not really what Jude is getting at here. I mean, when you, when you look in verse 4, and, and he says here, certain men have crept in unnoticed. He's talking about they've crept into the church. Really what he's talking about here is false teaching in the church. And so what, what we're really talking about today is people who would claim to be Christians, but then their faith doesn't line up with Scripture, and they're in, in particularly trying to lead other people astray. Okay, maybe just to kind of give us some handles for it, kind of stuff I'm talking about is 
and, and some of you heard me talk about uh, this before, but, you know, when I was at Carson Newman, and I just thank God for the miracle that he's doing there, the leadership that's there, the way the school is, is changing theologically and in other ways. But when I was a student at Carson Newman in uh, 1988 to 1992, during a part of that time, I, I almost chucked Christianity. And you say, what was going on? Well, what was going on is that there were professors like professors in the Bible department would say one thing in, 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 in class and then another thing when they would go out into the churches. Um, I had a professor, and I, I won't name him, but uh, he had a policy where you couldn't tape record his classes. And um, I'm sure he had his reasons for it, but I'm feel also confident that one of the reasons was he didn't want people really know what was, to know what was being taught in his classes. And, and I literally witnessed this one time up on the hill where Henderson is, at, at, at that building is at Carson Newman. He somehow found out that a student had tape recorded his class, in which you say, well, that broke the rules. He shouldn't have done it, and I'll, I'll give you that. But he literally uh, chased this student down, running across campus there to confiscate the tape from him. Uh, because if some of the things, you know, were heard, uh, there would have been an uproar in the Tennessee Baptist Church. But when I was a Carson Newman, I, I was taught stuff like, uh, you know, the Bible's only partially true, you know. It's kind of like it was sort of inspired and they were inspired to figure out where it was inspired uh, kind of thing. You know, evolution's true, wasn't really even taught creationism as a theory. Uh, you know, the, Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the, there's no such thing as predictive uh, prophecy. That's a quote. Uh, Jonah's a fishtail. That's a quote. Uh, the, you know, the stated writers of different biblical books didn't necessarily write them. Uh, had a teacher who taught us that God's not omnipotent, uh, that, that God's not all-powerful. Had a teacher who said you don't have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus uh, to, to be a Christian. And, uh, you know, I, I could keep going, but, but stuff like that. And, and that's what we're talking, that's what I'm talking about. This is what this is talking about, is people, I mean, that's not directly a church. But, but you understand, just because a church uh, has the title church on the sign, it's not necessarily a Christian church, or because a school has Christian in the name, it's not necessarily a Christian school. You have to be careful with those kind of things. And that was what was going on there. You know, uh, I, I'm weird like we all are, I guess, go about doing things weird ways. You know, part of the way I, I learned theology. So when Robin and I first got married, uh, we lived in an apartment up on 2nd North Street in Morristown, and somehow I ended up being like the crash test dummy for the Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Mormons. <laughs> I mean, like they just kept coming to, to, my, uh, to our apartment, I guess because I would talk to them, but literally part of the way that I learned theology is I would talk to them, and there was a guy, he was a pastor then, but he also worked at the old Greyhound bus station in downtown Morristown, near where we live. His name's John Pinkston. He's the director of missions for the Jefferson County Baptist Association now. But that's what a lot of his studies have been in, is those kind of, you know, pseudo-Christian religions. And so, uh, you know, I'd go study with John. He'd teach me theology. I'd try it out on the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and, and that's, that's literally partially how I learned theology, but, uh, but I just use that for an example because, like you said, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they would say, you know, they're, they're Christians, we follow God, but they, 
have a different version of God than what they don't believe that Jesus is God, or at least Almighty God, which is kind of weird. He's like a junior kind of God. And they believe salvation is by works. You know, Mormons have all kinds of strange beliefs, but it's a work-based religion. They deny the Trinity. They would say that they're Christian religions, but then they redefine it in different ways. That, that's what we're talking about here. Um, you know, in all these mission trips I've been on to Honduras, I've shared the gospel hundreds of times, I'm sure, uh, with with Roman Catholics. And, and I know some Catholics who are Christians, but if you follow Roman Catholic theology out to its logical conclusion, I mean, it's right in a lot of ways biblically. We would agree in a lot of ways biblically. But when it comes to salvation, which is the main issue, they get it wrong because it's Jesus plus. It's a sacramental system. It's a works-based system. It's not ultimately a grace-based system. And again, this is why it matters. How are we saved? Like, if, is, you know, is heaven real? Is hell real? And, like, how do you get to heaven? How do you know God? Is it truly only by faith in Jesus Christ and His grace? Or do we have to do some things? Or do we need the church to do some things for us? See, these aren't just obtuse theological questions. Our lives and our souls and our eternal destinies hang on what's true and not true. And so, you know, there's so many ways that, you know, there's legalism. Part of the reason we started True Life is because there's so much legalism in this area. But now, you know, there's a lot of antinomianism, you know, within the church. The idea, you know, that grace it frees you up just to do whatever you want to do. And apparently, uh, it sounds like Jude is addressing that in verse 4 when it says, you know, they turn the grace of our God into lewdness and, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You have the prosperity gospel. You have progressive uh, Christianity today, wanting to change moral norms and, and, and those kind of things. So the reality is the faith is always going to be under attack, both from within and without. Are we going to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Are we going to know what we believe, why we believe, but stand firm in that, be passionate about that, you know, proclaim that evangelistically to the world? You know, as a church, are we going to stand firm in what we believe? Are we going to pass the baton of faith to the, to the next generation? Are we going to build each other up in the faith? Honestly, part of the reason why we do the membership class, the Discovering True Life class, is so we can say up front, this is what we believe. This is who we are, and you know, make sure you know what you believe. Make sure you line up with this, because if you don't, this isn't the right church for you. And, and so, you know, we need to be clear in, in what we believe. So, question then becomes: Is why is this the faith worth standing for? And, and I want to give you five reasons that this is the faith that is worth standing for, contending for, agonizing for, uh, from these couple of verses here. So first of all, I want you to see that the faith is clearly defined. Now, th this is an important point. This is foundational to everything else in, in the book of Jude. Uh, it, it, Aaron, can you go back and put verse 3 back up again? Uh, so look at, look at verse 3 again. So, very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you. Now, look at the second part. 
exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The faith. Now, this is important. It doesn't say a faith. It doesn't say my faith. It says the faith. Now, when we think of, of faith, we usually think of it, we usually use it as a verb, right? We usually think of faith as I'm trusting in something. That's not how it's used here. Remember, every word of Scripture is important, every word's important. The key here, really, to understanding all of this is the little word the in front of faith. A little definite article, if I could be grammatical for a second. It means it's not being used as a verb here. It's being used as a noun. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but over 25 times, I've counted 27, there may be more, but, it, but at least 27 times in the New Testament, it uses the phrase, the faith, it uses faith as a noun instead of a verb. And, and so what it is saying here is the faith is the basic core of Christian doctrine that is clearly revealed in the New Testament. It, it could be, uh, you know, Acts 2.42, the apostles' doctrine. It, it, certainly at the core of it is, is the gospel, which Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 is of first importance. Uh, Philippians 1.27 says, stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So what we're talking about here is primary doctrine, the essentials, the, the, the fundamentals, what makes uh, Christianity Christianity, what we can't opt out of, what, what we can't be wrong about, what we can't disregard. You know, there, there's secondary matters that we can agree to disagree on and be fine. This would not be that. And, and can I just say this to you? If, if you're not a Christian... You know, you, you have a choice to make. You know, the Christianity at its core is Jesus. It, it's Christ, and then, you know, the faith here kind of surrounds, undergirds that. But you can choose to reject Jesus. You can tr choose to trust Jesus. But you really don't have the right to redefine what Christianity claims to be. We don't have the right to re redefine what Christianity claims to be, to make it what we want it to be, to make it more palatable to other people. Why? Because it's the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. Accept it, reject it, believe it, disbelieve it. That's your choice, but consider it for what it is. And so when we talk about the faith, what are we talking about? We're talking about that God is the creator and sovereign ruler of the world and that we are made in His image. We're talking about that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons who are the one God, co-equal, co-eternal. That Jesus Christ is fully God and truly man. That He is the eternal God who came to earth, was you know, conceived through the Virgin Mary in the incarnation, 
didn't cease to be God, but he laid aside his divine glory and the independent exercise of his divine attributes to become a true and genuine human being, to live a perfect and a sinless life as a man, to go to the cross as the sin-bearing substitute, propitiating the wrath of God, atoning for our sins as our substitute in our place, was bodily raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, receded at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us today. Someday he's literally going to come back uh, to earth and uh, rule and reign, uh, that he is the judge, that heaven and hell are real, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ uh, alone, that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. When we talk about the faith, this is what we're talking about. Those are the things uh, to contend for, to agonize over, to stand for, to give our lives for. Those are the non-negotiables that are hills to die on. And, And let's be real. We get up in the air about so many other things that don't really even matter. You know, we, we look for things in, in churches that are, are really secondary. I mean, that may be important, but, you know, people look they're hung up on worship styles and, you know, programs and what do you have for my kids and all those kind of things. And if you're investigating a church, you ought to check that stuff out, but you ought to start with this. I mean, does like this church really believe and really live the faith? Is it really a church? Because the idea would be that if you're not solid in the faith, you're not really a church. That sound biblical theology is one of the non-negotiable requirements for really, truly being a church. Second, I want us to see that the faith is totally exclusive. Why would I say that? Because it's the faith, right? It's not a faith, it's the faith. It's not your faith, it's the faith. It's exclusive. Now, so the claim would be, what Christians are claiming is this is The true faith. This is, Jesus is, he claimed it, the way to God. That the Bible is the revelation of God to humanity. This is how we know spiritual truth. Now, sometimes people get all up in the air about that. This is one of the things that's offensive to people uh, about Christianity. So, you know... If, if, if this like bothers you that we make this claim, let me just give you some things to think about, okay? Uh, first of all, if it's divinely revealed, it has to be the truth. So, so the real issue is, um, if you're examining Christianity, is this true? It, did God inspire the writers of Scripture? Does this correspond to reality? Was Jesus real? Did he rise from the dead? When when I was struggling with it, that's where I focused my studies. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, that pretty much answers every other question. If it's not divinely revealed, 
It's not the truth. Again, you know, when, once you start saying things like, well, this is my truth, once you enter with the word my, you might as well not say the word truth. It, it's, it's become a contradiction, an oxymoron at that point. Because if something is true, and, and you need to get this in your mind, I'd write this down, if you, I'd memorize this. If something is true, it is true for all people, in all places, at all times, in all circumstances. That's what makes something true. If something is true, it's true because it corresponds to reality. And listen, we can't change reality. That, that's why, I mean, just take a, a common current example, the whole gender identity debate. Listen, we're not against anybody. We love everybody. You just can't create your own reality, though. And there is a biological reality to things. And isn't it kind of ironic and, you know, I think we ought to think about these kind of inconsistencies. A few months ago, it seemed like nobody in our society could define what a woman was. Then the Dobbs decision comes down, and now women's rights are being trampled on. Can't really have it both ways. It can't be a truth. It can't be a truth. Or simply a perspective, what I'm saying is, when you start making claims like, historical claims like, Jesus died, he rose from the dead, that's either a fact or it's a hoax. You see, Christianity is not just a philosophy, it's not just an ethical system, it's based in a person who existed in time and space. That separates it from every other religion. So again, if you're investigating this, Check out who Jesus is because everything else flows out of that. Second, I would say that it's logical um, to say that it's exclusive. Why? Because something in its opposite can't both be true. Right? If, if, if it's true, I mean, you know, we, all, we want to be warm and fuzzy and make everybody feel good. But here's the reality. If, if, if. If the Bible teaches that God is three and one, and Islam, say, teaches that, you know, God is one, there's no such thing as a trinity, and Hinduism teaches polytheism, that there's many gods, I'm sorry, but all three of those things can't be true. Because they're different. Now, maybe none of them are true, but I guarantee you that not all of them are true. And, and here's another thing I would point out is uh, other religions would have no issue with what I'm saying right now. This is a modern American, secular, humanistic, fuzzy thinking kind of thing. Um, I guarantee you if we brought a, a group of Muslims in here, they're not gonna be, they, may, they might debate the Trinity with me, but they're not going to debate to try to say that both of us are right. Every religion is exclusive. In some way. You understand, even if you're saying every way leads to God, that's still an exclusive position if you say people who think there's only one way that leads to God. Because ideas aren't broad or narrow. Ideas are true or false. So other religions don't think every, uh, all roads lead to God. And again, 
Something, I think, has to be right. Something has to be true. I've said this a million times, but I'll say it again. You can't say there's no absolutes, everything is relative, because you have just contradicted yourself logically because you've stated an absolute in, in, in saying that. Nobody believes there's no absolutes. The question is, what is actually true? Figure that out. But also say this. You know, Christianity is exclusive in one sense, but in another way it's the most inclusive thing in the world because it says, whosoever will, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. It says Jesus died for your sins, and if you'll believe in him, he'll forgive you and he'll give you everlasting life. So it's exclusive in one sense. In another way, it's the most inclusive thing there is in the world. Um, I would say, though, that, that, that people are hypocrites when it comes to this. Because, again, uh, you know, Christians can be excoriated for saying Jesus is the only way to God. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you take whatever the uh, issue of the moment is, be it abortion or homosexuality or gender or whatever else, and um, disagree with the current cultural opinion and see how inclusive they are. Listen. I don't care who's inclusive or exclusive. I care about who's right or wrong, right? What's true and what's false. Again, that is the issue. Number three, the faith is permanently settled. It says it's once for all delivered to the saints. So in, in, in other words, if you're a Christian, it's not up for discussion or debate. We don't get to be progressive Christians and, and, and change it to suit the modern mind. We don't need to get more enlightened uh, you know, by the modern world. We need to get more enlightened by the Word of God. We need the Holy Spirit to teach us more of its unchanging truths because it is the unchanging truth of God. Again, if something's true, it's true for all people in all places at all times under all circumstances. It's permanently settled. Number four, the faith is divinely revealed. Notice it's delivered to the saints. It comes from God to us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It came by the Holy Spirit. We didn't create it, invent it. We didn't think it up. Um, you know, I don't think that Christianity is the message. Part of the reason I believe it and this kind of stuff we'll talk about next week is I don't think it's the kind of message that a human being would have thought of because it runs so counter to how we think. We don't think grace. That's not natural. We think work. We think pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and we get the credit for it. Uh, you know, we don't think uh, rejoice in a cross. There's nothing normal or natural about that. Listen, we are called, in the words of Paul to Timothy, to guard this deposit, to guard this treasure that we've been entrusted with. Why? Because it's the faith, once we're all delivered to the saints, that we're to agonize for, that we're to preserve, that we're to proclaim, that we're to share, that we're advance, to advance, that we're to pass on to our children, that, that we're to uh, pass on to the next generations in our church because if, if we drop the ball, 
if we don't hand off the baton of truth well, what does that mean for people's lives? What does that mean for our families? What does that mean for our church? What does that mean for the world? Again, I'm not so much, I mean, I guess clearly in one way I am advocating for it. Ultimately, I'm not trying to tell you what to believe here. I'm telling you to figure out what you believe and live like you really believe it. Faith without works is dead. Be passionate about it. Advocate for it. Stand for it. it you know, the last reason that he gives, and uh, I'm going to finish this. We'll, we'll pick up wherever I leave off in a couple of weeks. But, you know, he, he says here in, in verse 4 that the faith is subtly attacked. I mean, you don't have to fight for something, wrestle for something, agonize over something if everybody's, uh, you know, in, in favor of it, Right? Um, it's kind of like something Nick Saban said. I can't believe I'm quoting Nick Saban, but he said something like, uh, you know, if, if you want to be a leader, expect people to criticize you. If you don't want to be a leader, go sell ice cream, right? Nobody's going to be against you giving them ice cream, right? I would hope. If you're, if you're against ice cream, you got issues. Come let us pray for you or something, right? Everybody loves ice cream, but not everybody loves Saying this is the word of God, or Jesus is the only way to God, or there's heaven and hell, there's right and wrong, uh, you know, there's truth, there's things you have to, to decide. And so we should expect pushback. Again, we should expect the world to not agree with this, but specifically what he's talking about here is being on guard against false teaching. In your church, it could be in your home, it could be if your kids are in a Christian school, if your kids are in a Christian university, uh, you know, what, whatever ministry that, uh, that you're involved in. Tim Challies has put it this way. He says, Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians, or power brokers, but pastors. His priests do not peddle a different religion, but a deadly perversion of the true one. His troops do not make a full-out frontal assault, but work as agents, sneaking into the opposing army. Satan's tactics are studied, clever, predictable, effective. Therefore, we must always remain vigilant. Jesus himself warned us, Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Paul warned uh, the, the elders at the church at Ephesus before he departed from them. He said, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's why the church is so important. He says, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. We're called to be zealous. We're called to be on guard. Maybe in, in a funny way, it's, it, it's something like this. Um, you know, Grayson Horner's our youth intern. A lot of you know Grayson. Uh, Grayson's like our youngest ever men's leadership graduate, men's leadership training graduate. 
And when we would pray together in men's leadership training, which is one of the best things about men's leadership training, you know, a group of men praying together, some of them, you know, praying out loud with people uh, for the first time ever, uh, Grayson would have this common prayer. Um, he was praying, Lord, keep Pastor Jimmy from heresy. And after a while, I started wondering, is this like this much of a danger? Is this this big of a concern around here? And there's kind of a joke that Grayson would carry around rocks to throw if anybody uh, started, you know, if you see a rock flying through here, you know, Grayson thinks I'm speaking heresy. And uh, th that's kind of funny, but that's really the attitude that he's getting at here. That's what he's talking about. So l let me close with this analogy. Um, so he used the word wolves here um, a couple times. So, okay, think about these terms. Jesus is the great chief shepherd of the church. Elders, we believe in a plurality of pastors, elders are, are the under-shepherds, and, and part of their job is what uh, Paul said in Acts chapter 20, you know, to guard the flock, and a lot of that guarding is against false teaching. So, so there's sheep, right? There's, which Jesus said, I know my sheep, they hear my voice and they follow me. Sheep is uh, a metaphor in, in, in Scripture for believers. And, and, and there could be wayward sheep mixed in there. But then uh, Jesus used in Matthew 25 and talking about judgment, he used goats as a metaphor. And a goat would be somebody who's in church, maybe looks like a Christian, but they're really not. They're not a sheep, they're a goat. And then he talks about wolves here. And so under, Jesus is the shepherd. Under him, there's shepherds, there's pastors. And then the, the question is, for all of us, are we a sheep? Are we a follower of Christ? And, and are we following him right now? Are we getting off the path a little bit? Do we need the chief shepherd, maybe the, the, the shepherds of the church, to bring us back on the path? Could you be a goat? Could you be in, in, in church? but you have never genuinely committed your life to Christ, you're not trusting Him and Him alone for your salvation. But then there's wolves. Now, a wolf isn't a confused believer. That's maybe a wayward sheep. A wolf is a heretic, a false teacher. And that's something to be careful to throw that designation around with. Don't throw it around because you've seen some 30-second out-of-context clip on YouTube of somebody that somebody's doing a hatchet job on. I mean, that's way too prevalent right now. But, I mean, somebody that the, 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 the course of their ministry is clearly evidencing unbiblical teaching or practice, and they're hurting people, they're leading people astray. We'll talk about, you know, specific characteristics of them as we go through the book of Jude. But I just say this, you know, sheep you bring back, goats you evangelize, wolves you shoot. The Bible tells us, Romans 16, we're, that we're to practice church discipline against false teachers. It's our job to protect. And, and, and so what I'm saying is, while, um, you know, it'd be nice just to be able to be positive all the time. And just talk about Jesus and salvation and our blessings and the goodness of God. Jude says we can't do that. Because that's not the world in which we live. 
And that's not even the reality of the church. That we need to be on guard. We need to know the faith. How are you going to know the faith? Well, are you in God's word? Are you feeding yourself spiritually? Uh, are you in church uh, listening to God's word preached on a weekly basis? Are you in a small group being uh, discipled? Are we sharing the faith? Are we evangelizing the world around us? And are we standing for, contending for the faith? Are we saying uh, that this is what we believe, this is what the Bible says, this is where we're going to stand? I don't care what anybody else says. And, you know, it's really a good thing that there's more opposition because it'll show who's real. Are you real? All of us are either a sheep, a goat, or a wolf. Where are you spiritually? Where do you stand with Jesus? What do you believe about the faith? Are you ambivalent about it? Are you passionate about it? If not, let God do a work in your heart today. Let's, let's bow our heads and close our eyes.